All right. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer together? Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to come before you. I thank you that the riches of your grace have extended to us in Christ. And that for those of us who believe, we have access to you with boldness and confidence. I pray that you would use this morning's message to grow us all in more of what that means. That we all might devote ourselves to prayer. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's message is uh, going to be a little bit different from other messages you've heard from this pulpit. Our normal practice here is to take the main point of a passage of Scripture, make it the main point of the sermon, and then apply it to everyday life. We make that our practice at Redeemer because we want to ensure that God's agenda rules the church, not the preacher's agenda from week to week. What makes today's message a little different for us is that we won't be looking at the main point of one passage in particular, but we will actually be bringing together a host of passages and and looking at what those passages say on the subject of our communion with God And how that communion relates, in particular, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The extraordinary news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. I want to show you, this morning, God's agenda for the church to pray in light of what God in His extravagant love, has achieved for us through sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to do that not from one passage in particular, but a host of passages where the gospel and prayer come together in some very explicit and very encouraging ways. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to give you the opportunity to join each other in practicing what you hear you will be able to practice today God's agenda for prayer. And the elders are even going to be at the front. And we would would like the opportunity to lay hands upon you and pray for you if you so desire. So that's what we're doing this morning. I held off continuing the Gospel of John because September 1st uh, begins our Global Missions Emphasis Month. And we'll be spending four weeks in Matthew 28. Meaning that we would have started chapter 7 today in Gospel of John, had a five-week break before getting back into it. And I wanted to keep, those chapter, to keep that chapter before you week after week to provide for better understanding. So I thought it would be easier for us to keep those messages together and stick a different message in between Missions Emphasis Month and the sermons on Colossians you've heard. But with that meant I had to decide... What in the world 
in all of this scripture am I going to preach to you today? And one of the reasons we're going to look at prayer is that I need growth in this amazing discipline. And if I need growth in prayer as a pastor, then surely those following my lead need growth in this area as well. One of the first questions that we as elders have to ask ourselves if we see something lacking or unhealthy or not happening at all in the church, one of the first questions we ask is not, why aren't the people doing this? One of the first questions we have to ask ourselves is, have we led them there? Have we led them there? Because a church will only grow towards health insofar as the leadership looks like the good shepherd himself. So I wanted to spend some more time reminding myself of the incredible privilege that we have in prayer. Another reason we're going to look at prayer this morning is that we all need growth in prayer as a church. Think of how quiet it normally is whenever we invite the congregation on a Sunday morning to participate in voicing their request to God over one another. We all just sit there and wait for the other guy to speak while he waits for us to speak. It's quiet when Gary asks us to pray aloud over the church. We're getting better But we need a fresh look at what privilege we have in coming before God together and crying out to God together. Or many times we often express opinions about things, about the way things should be. We just kind of rattle off at the mouth without ever consulting God first in prayer. We are tempted often to speak faster than what our hearts than our hearts actually trust the one who holds all things in his hands our mouths speak faster than our hearts actually trust the one who is the head of the church and who is building his church on top of that our american culture is constantly shoving more accomplishment and more production in our faces and we're very susceptible to believing its lies Have you ever sat down to pray and you feel like you're just wasting time? You're five minutes into prayer and your mind begins racing to everything you could be doing right now and your flesh is shouting, why don't you just get to work for crying out loud? Your eyes don't see any immediate results and so you're frustrated. What use is this? Time in prayer. And more and more, prayer gets pushed to the peripheral of our Christian life when God's Word is telling us that there is no Christian life apart from prayer. At the heart of our Christian life is communion with God, not just in scheduled times of the day, but also throughout our day and into our nights. Another temptation we face in this church is that some of us want spiritual vitality. Some of us want Christ-like transformation. Some of us want maturity for ministry. Teach me more. Teach me more. We want these 
things. And that's very good. Those are really good desires. But what is not good is that sometimes we want those things apart from communion with God in prayer. What we'll see from several passages today is that change without communion not only overlooks the whole point of the Christian life, which is being with God, but it's also an attempt of the human heart to do what it's always been doing, achieve its own agenda without reliance on the grace of God. And so these are some of the ways that we need, these are some of the reasons why we need growth in prayer as a church. And a final reason I chose to preach on prayer is that towards the beginning of the year, the, year, the elders were reading together through the book of Acts. Some of you are even in the Acts class for discipleship hour. And we couldn't help but notice that regular prayer is a pattern we observe in the early church and a pattern that we long to see among the relationships within our own church. So we started by sharing some of the same things I'll share with you this morning with our care group leaders back in February. Because what we were seeing, for example, is, is like in Acts chapter 2, that God, through the proclamation of the word, saves sinners and he unites them into a body. And this is the picture we get in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 42. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is what they devote themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers get left off a lot of times in church life. We, we put a full stop after they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. The scriptures tell us that that's not healthy. The church is to devote themselves, yes, to the apostles' teaching, yes, to the fellowship and the breaking bread, and the prayers. Part and parcel to the church's life and mission was constant dependence on God and prayer, such that we even see the New Testament commanding us again and again, be constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Continue steadfastly in prayer, Colossians 4. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And all of these commands are nothing more than, ex- than an extension of what Jesus himself taught and modeled for his 12 disciples. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Jesus told them a parable in Luke 18 to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We all know from Matthew 6... When Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like this, but when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. If we're committed to the word of God ruling our lives as a church, then prayer should characterize our own life and mission together. So those are a few reasons why I've chosen to talk about prayer this morning. 
But the scriptures will not allow me to just simply come in, highlight the need we have for growth in prayer, exhort you just to do it, and then leave. If we're going to be thoroughly Christian in our thinking about prayer in the scriptures, then we must consider how prayer relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jewish people pray. Muslim people pray. Lots of people in religions contrary to Christianity pray, but none of them have any true access to the living God. And neither did any of us prior to the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the word of truth that we might embrace the message of salvation. When we view prayer in light of the gospel, again and again we will be stunned that we, rebellious sinners, have any access to God whatsoever. Prayer is... It's not just another ball to keep juggling with all the other spiritual disciplines. I've got prayer going. i reading my Bible. Scripture memory. Scripture memory. If you've got Redeemer, you've got to do care groups too. God, I dropped prayer. Let's get prayer back up. It's not just a, a ball to keep juggling. Prayer is actually the expression of being born again. It is actually the expression of communion with God, which we once did not have, but now have gained through faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings me to a first point this morning. Prayer is a goal of the gospel itself. Prayer is a goal of the gospel. It is a goal... That the triune God built into the redeeming work, to his redeeming work. Apart from the Father's love for us, apart from the Son's life, death, and resurrection, and apart from the Spirit's ongoing presence with us, Christian prayer would be wholly non-existent. Christian prayer would be wholly non-existent because a relationship with God would be wholly non-existent. Any attention to the larger storyline of Scripture reminds us that God had created us for perfect communion with Him, for moment-by-moment dependence on His provision and his care. This is clear when we open our Bibles to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Adam needed the breath of life, and the Lord provided it. Adam needed food, and the Lord gives it. Adam needed a place to walk with God, a garden, and God put him in it. Adam needed a suitable helper, and the Lord created the woman from his side. Adam needed words to follow that lead to life, and the Lord gave them to him. Adam needed a king who ruled over his relationship to his wife, a king who knows what that relationship is supposed to be about, and the Lord walked with them in the garden. Life in the garden for Adam and Eve was a life of perfect fellowship with God, the creator of the universe, the Holy One himself. 
It was a life of unhindered access to His presence. A life of moment-by-moment dependence on God's provision and care. And a life lived according to God's purposes in the world. We were all made for this kind of communion with our Maker. Then we know how the story goes when we turn our pages to Genesis 3. Adam rebelled and the entire human race with him fell into sin and out of fellowship with God. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1 and Romans 5. Because of this rebellion, we are born into the world dead in sin, following Satan, Ephesians 2 says. Following Satan. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who we were. Separated from Christ. Without God in the world. Attempting to live under self-rule and by the power of self-sufficiency. And we were by nature God's enemies. We're not merely unaware of our need for God. And our need for fellowship with Him. We actually prefer nothing of His divine care and fellowship when He offers it. We see that this is the pattern throughout Scripture. Adam, if you think back, Adam chose fellowship with a fork-tongued liar over the God who just gave him everything. Israel. Israel chooses the meat baskets under Pharaoh's whip instead of communion with their rock and redeemer in the wilderness. They're painting pictures of Egypt, as the song goes. While they're walking, I wish I was there. I wish I was back there. When when their own rock and redeemer is right before them. Our sinful condition, apart from God's grace, is that we hate communion with God. We don't want to depend on Him because we want all the glory. We despise any admission that we need Him... And we rebel from living according to His purposes for the world. Prayerful dependence on the true God is not a natural inclination of the human heart. Rebellion is our natural inclination. Self-sufficiency, I could do this, is our natural inclination. And the Bible says that that kind of rebellion merits eternal separation from God. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that those who do not know God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There is no communion with God in that relationship. Now here's what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite our ignorance... Despite our rebellion, despite our preferences, our self-sufficient preferences, which would only condemn us, God sends His Son into the world to live in perfect communion with His Father. We've been seeing that throughout the Gospel of John. He sends His Son into the world to live in total dependence on His Father as a man so that He could become the perfect sacrifice we needed to bear the punishment we deserved for our sin. He became that perfect man to reconcile us to God that we might have fellowship with Him. And He did it through dying on the cross. 
he also rose from the dead, that we might have ongoing access to the throne of grace. And get this, he ascended into heaven to give us the Holy Spirit that we might desire to pray, know how to pray, and conform our lives to God's will when we pray. That's good news. A relationship that once did not exist now exists through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's where we see that prayer is actually a goal of the gospel, or at least one outworking of a much larger goal of the gospel, namely our reconciliation with God. As you open your Bibles to John 15 with me, and let's look at a few passages together. John chapter 15. Might get there next year. Page, one, page 902 in the Pew Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. John chapter 15, we'll, look, we'll, we'll just look at verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples... You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So what two things do we see coming together in verse 16? We see God's gracious election of weak Undeserving sinners, you did not choose me, but I chose you, so that they ask the Father, so that they ask the Father in Jesus' name, put fruit-bearing works in my life, make this happen, give me grace, save people, open my mouth in the declaration of the gospel. Those two things are coming together, his election and our praying. Apart from God's grace, nobody would pray this way because nobody would know the one true God. And if they, even if they knew about him, even if they had heard about him, they wouldn't try to relate to him through his son, Jesus Christ. The disciples can only relate to God in Jesus's name because Jesus chose them in accordance with his father's gracious will. God lovingly initiated our relationship with Christ and the result is that we ask. We pray, we implore, we beseech, we cry out. God, produce some fruit in my life. Have you ever thought that about your discipleship? When Jesus says, come, follow me, and you follow him. Have you ever, have you ever thought that Jesus chose you to follow him so that you could talk to God. Not just so that you could do things for God. Not just so you could just go to work. Follow me, go to work. Jesus says, follow me, and gives you access to his Father in heaven. He didn't choose you just to put you to work, but so that you might commune with God in the work. Luke 18.7 makes the same connection between our election leading to prayer 
Will not God give justice to his elect? And what is the character of the elect's life? Who cry to him day and night. How about Galatians 4? Let's turn there together. Galatians 4, page 974 in the Pew Bible. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians 4. I'll start in verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Stop there. There again is the grace of God in the work of Christ on our behalf. When the fullness of night, God, God did this. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Here, this is the gospel. The law looked at you and said, guilty, deserving of eternal condemnation. That's what the law said of you. And God, in His kindness and out of His love, sends His Son into the world to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might fulfill all of the law's demands to the last one on your behalf. And by doing so, become your blameless substitute, that the curse might be lifted from you forever. And God looks upon you and says, not guilty instead. Takes all your sin, puts them on Christ. Takes all of Christ's righteousness, puts it upon you. God says, not guilty over you. That's the gospel. That is good news. Now, that's not all that Christ's death secures for us. Look at verse 5, the last half. All of that happened so that we might receive adoption as sons. And how do adopted sons relate to their new father? Verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! The same cry Jesus uttered in the garden. That's, that's prayer. Crying, Abba, Father! as an adopted son, is a goal of the gospel. It's an outworking of our communion with God because we have His Spirit. It's it's inside of us now. Crying, Abba, Father. This This is, in my walk with the Lord, this is newer to me. I'm 31. I was saved when I was 17. J.I. Packer summarized the gospel in three words like this. Adoption, through propitiation. I think the bulk of my Christian life has been spent on only half of the gospel. Namely, propitiation. Through propitiation. It's only been the latter few years of my Christian walk that I've begun to to love. I'm adopted. The propitiation was to get me somewhere. was to get me to God. 
to enjoy Him, to cry out to Him, to commune with Him. That's the fullness of what we have in Christ. Let's go next to Ephesians 2. One letter over. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. So on page 976. Paul says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. That's a great summary of the gospel. Jews and Gentiles... Don't get along. The law has made it such that Israel is distinct from the rest of the nations. Christ comes in, abolishes the law, unites these people in one body, and not just unites them together, but unites them most of all to God, and they can have access to Him in one, to God in one spirit, Jew and Gentile alike. And then verse 18 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And get this, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to God through the work of Christ. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul characterizes that access like this. He says that it's through faith in Christ that we have boldness and access with confidence before God. You ever feel too unclean to speak to God? Your sins paralyzing? Your communion with God? This text says that you are too too unclean to come to God. And it says that Christ made you clean. He wiped all of your sins away so that you now have access in one spirit to God the Father. That's the whole point of the cross. He makes you so clean that you can stand before the Holy One of Israel with confidence. With confidence. So again, unhindered access to the Father in one spirit through Christ is a goal of the gospel. One more. Hebrews 4, we read it earlier in the service. Past Paul's letters, page 1003. Hebrews 4. Look at, start in verse 14. God says this, Since then we have a high priest 
a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, God explains the good news. Despite our guilt, God anointed Jesus to be our superior high priest. He was the sinless one. He offered the superior sacrifice for sins. He walked into the heavenly temple as our priestly representative, and He forever lives to pray for us there. Now, what does the writer of Hebrews conclude from that good news? Verse 16. Let us then, or let us therefore... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You got needs this morning? Needs that have so buried you in life that you don't know how to get out? Is the guilt and shame too much to bear? Is your sin always before you? Jesus became a high priest to secure your confident access to the omnipotent God of the universe whose kingdom cannot be shaken. If you will trust in Jesus Christ, you have that access to God. Total access to God, confidence to enter His presence, inner dwelling of the Spirit crying, Abba, Assurance as sons of God, greatest needs are met in Christ, permanent fellowship with God, never to be lost again or taken away by another. A great high priest who's ready to give mercy and grace when you voice your cry to him. I hope you're beginning to see the point. The message of the gospel is that God saves sinners through the work of Jesus Christ and he does so for our fellowship with God. For our communion with God. A communion we lost in the garden, but now have through faith in Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying this morning is that in that sense, prayer is a goal of the gospel. And that answers the question of both how we can pray and of why we would pray. We can pray. Because God has reconciled us to himself through his son. That's why we can pray. And we would pray because we have been reconciled to God. We're not just reconciled to something out there. We're reconciled to the creator of the universe. Glorious in splendor, infinite in power and might and wisdom. And we're reconciled to Him. Why wouldn't you want to pray? Why wouldn't you want to come before Him day in and day out? This God who's loved you this great to send His own Son, to take away the hostility. You're no longer enemies. You're called friend of God. Why wouldn't we want to pray to Him? So that's the first point I wanted to set before you this morning is that prayer 
as part of our communion with God is a goal of the gospel. Now, secondly, when we see that prayer is a goal of the gospel, we'll see that prayer is also the God's means of advancing the gospel. So prayer is not only a goal of the gospel, prayer is God's means of advancing the gospel. Prayer is the means by which our sovereign Lord accomplishes His redemptive purposes. In other words, part of being saved is praying. And praying is what God uses to advance His salvation. That doesn't mean our laborious efforts in proclaiming the gospel and laying down our lives for others just go out the window. We'll talk about that in the next four weeks. It's just that none of that will even happen apart from fervent prayer for grace to make that happen. To put it another way, the work of Jesus brings us into perfect communion with the Father and in so doing, He makes us active participants in the Father's purposes. In His kindness, God saves us to commune with Him, and then He uses that communion to achieve His purposes. So, for example, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, back right after the Gospels, right before Romans, Acts chapter 4. It's page 912 in the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 4, we'll start in verse, uh, verse 27. Listen how the, the disciples pray. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is, this is cutting right at the heart of the question of lots of people. Why pray if God's sovereign? The Bible doesn't draw that inference from the sovereignty of God. We see it right here. They did to Jesus whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God has predetermined plans and purposes. And knowing that, the disciples go on. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is their prayer. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God has predetermined plans and the disciples are participating in them by voicing their requests to God in prayer. His sovereign work of grace in spreading the gospel is impetus for their prayer. It does not undermine their prayers. He gives prayers. God gives prayers to His people in order to accomplish His accomplish his purposes. And we get to be the privileged recipients of interacting with God as he's carrying out his work. That's an amazing thing. 
God, this is how God answers. We don't get this often. Here we see God answering their prayer. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So here we see that even God delights in letting them participate in His purposes by using their prayer to accomplish His purposes. So if our first point about the, the, the gospel being a goal, of, I mean the prayer being a goal of the gospel, if that first point helped us understand how we can pray, namely God saved us, and why we would pray, namely God is awesome, this second point helps us understand what we actually pray for. Namely, what, namely, that God's will would be done. And the New Testament gives us plenty of insight into what that actually means. We see one example there in Acts chapter 4. Let's, let's look at a few, few other examples. I'm about to run through a lot of Scripture texts. So I wouldn't worry about flipping around at this point. You could just write down the reference and look it up when you get home. Just sit and listen. Please. (laughs) So for starters, let's consider John 15, 7 to 8. Jesus says this. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What we see there is that bearing fruit... Bearing fruit is not ultimately left to you. It's it's dependent wholly upon God. But God awaits our word-saturated requests to glorify His name in the Son among all peoples. If my word abides in you, ask. The word is shaping and fostering the prayer in our hearts to God. Ask, and it will be given to you. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 We see there that prayer is the means by which God causes the word of the Lord to speed ahead in, 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 in a city. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, prayer is the means by which God causes the church to bear fruit in every good work. We have not ceased to pray for you, Paul says. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You want to bear fruit? Devote yourself to prayer. That is so un-American. You want to bear fruit? Get up and work. Get up and do something. Now that's part of the Christian life. We do do things. But the scriptures say that our doing will only bear the fruit, the kind of fruit that God wants, the kind of fruit that glorifies His Father. That kind of fruit only comes through prayer. We can add numbers to this church. We could do a whole lot of things to start just bringing the people in, multiplying. But if it's not glorifying to God, it's all for naught. 
The kind of fruit that God wants is a fruit that is born when we're on our knees in prayer. Because then He gets the glory. We've asked, He gives, we praise the giver. How about 1 Timothy 2? How often do you do this one? Prayer is the means God ordained that we might live a peaceful life in bringing the message of reconciliation to people in high places. Think North Korea. Think Syria here when you're thinking these things. As well as America. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If any leader is going to be saved, they must believe that message right there. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's what you tell Obama. That's what you tell a Hitler when he gets on the scene. That's what you tell Kim Jong-il. But God intends to save some of them by using your prayers to change their hearts. And that's why Paul says to pray for them. This is the heartbeat of God, to desire all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why we pray the way we pray. 2 Thessalonians 1, prayer is the, verses 11 to 12, prayer is the means by which the name of the Lord Jesus is glorified in the church. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. You want Jesus' name exalted in this church? Pray that God would make us worthy of his calling. Pray that God would give us works of faith by His power. Romans 10.1 Prayer is the means by which God saves people. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is what Paul is praying for his own Jewish kinsmen. Do you have lost neighbors? Write their names on a piece of paper or something on your refrigerator, on your kitchen table, and pray for them every day and pray that God would also give you boldness to go and speak to them. Just pray for them. Pray, pray for God to save them. Pray that he would remove their heart of stone. You've got a lost family member? Pray that God would rip out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That he would write the law of God on their hearts. That he would cause them to be born again. Don't just, don't just pray, God, would you just get them to the point where they will accept the gospel? No, save them. Don't just, don't just get them up to the edge. Push them over in prayer. In James 5, prayer is the means 
by which God keeps us from growing distracted with his purposes, from, from his purposes with sin. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You want deliverance from particular sins? Hiding them from your brothers and sisters and your spouse is destructive to your soul and is destructive to the church of God. God's word says you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters and he will use them to bring healing. So confess them to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One more, last one. Ephesians 6, verses 16 to 18. There we see, if you think, this is in the context of the the spiritual warfare that's going on around us and he's just finished saying... Uh, that we, we, we need to shod our feet with the gospel of peace so that we might run and tell others about it. Prayer is the means by which God tears down spiritual strongholds and keeps the gospel of peace advancing in darkness. Paul says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I often wonder if the reason we haven't seen many converts join our assembly is that we're simply not praying for God to bring them. We're simply not praying for God to penetrate the darkness or for God to save anybody in our neighborhoods, for God to do any sort of mighty work of faith through us. Paul's instructions are very sobering. Pray at all times in the Spirit so that your feet might run to the lost with the gospel of peace. Again and again, we see that prayer is a means God uses to advance His purposes in the gospel. And when He saves us, it's part of what He does in us. He inspires these prayers. He gives us grace to pray this way. Read Romans 8, where you have both the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ helping us pray to the Father. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, it says. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So if you want to see our church mature in Christ, God will not only use your various gifts and skills to do so. He will not only use your Bible knowledge to do so. He will also use your prayers. In fact, in His incredible mercy, He has chosen to work through your prayers. He's chosen to work through your prayers for this church and the lost people that we meet. If you desire to see your, maybe your closest friends in this body, maybe your own care group members, if you desire to see them grow in bearing each other's burdens, I heard somebody mention Galatians 6.2 this morning in Sunday school, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you desire to see each other bearing one another's burdens, ask your Father who is omnipotent to make the change, both in you and in them. 
If you long to see our church zealous for evangelism and caring for the needy in our community, pray the Lord will change our hearts to do so and make us fervent in spirit with the gospel. If you want your son or your daughter or your friend to hunger for God's word, implore God to open the eyes of their heart to behold wonderful things in his word. Whatever it might be, join your voices together and offer your thanksgiving and your prayers and your supplications to the Lord. Ask the Lord, we're going to do that now, ask the Lord to save and to heal and to fill and come and shake and convict and bless and win and triumph. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to get together in clusters, wherever you're sitting, just turn around, whatever, and we're going to spend the next few minutes praying together. And the elders will be down here at the front to also pray over you if you would like that. You need not be nervous. So let's, uh, let's go to a time of prayer and then I'll come close us in a few minutes. Brothers. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for the time that we've been able to spend in prayer. I pray that these prayers would be heard and that you will grant us much faith for the week ahead, for the week ahead in, your, in your wisdom and in your perfect knowledge and in your sufficient grace. I ask that you would continue us in this practice of prayer that, that throughout our weeks and throughout our days uh, that, you, that we would draw very near to you knowing all that has been won for us through the cross of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, even where we are discouraged in our life of prayer, may we look to him again who is now enthroned as our high priest and king and who intercedes on our behalf even when we cannot cry or don't know how to cry to you. Give us grace now also in our giving. May we do it with cheerful hearts, glad hearts, that your name may be praised among the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.